This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. He is a retired Green Beret with over 20 years of Army and Special Operations experience and is the author of a new book, Operation Pineapple Express, the incredible story of a group of Americans who undertook one last mission and honored a promise in Afghanistan. Roger and Scott discuss the story of a group of retired Green Berets who came together to save over 500 Afghans who were targeted by the Taliban in the midst of America's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, welcome to the show. Hey, Roger. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's an honor to have you on. Uh, thank you for your service and your continued focus and vigilance on the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, you're the author of a new book called Operation Pineapple Express, a really remarkable tale of what a retired military person has done to stay true to his mission, uh, the mission that the United States military took on, the United States took on, of course, uh, came to a tragic end uh, just over a year ago with the U.S. exit uh, from Afghanistan. But that's really where your story begins. But before we get into all of that, Scott, as I mentioned, you're a retired Green Beret with over 20 years of Army and Special Operations experience. I want to hear about the story, but first, I want you to share with our listeners and viewers, Scott, why you joined the military. And I'm asking that question, one, because we want to get to know you so we can fully appreciate what you've been doing since you left the military. But two, as you no doubt are aware, we're at a time where the military is really having difficulty recruiting the next Scott man to serve. So, So tell us about your story, Scott. Yeah, I appreciate that, Roger. And I think hopefully we'll get a chance to circle back to the fact that that all of this is related. You know, the, the, the recruiting and retention, I think you can walk it right back to Afghanistan and what the veterans are going through right now. And I would also throw out, too, just quickly that, you know, the work that we did with Pineapple, um, it was so many volunteers, veterans and civilians, and a lot of other volunteer groups as well besides Pineapple. So we'll, I know we'll jump into that. But um, I, I I would say what got me in the military was I I was a, a scrawny run of a kid growing up in, in rural Arkansas in a little town called Mount Ida. And we didn't even have a stoplight in that town. It was a very, very, very small town. And, and one day a, a Green Beret named Mark walked into the soda shop where I was sitting. And the second I saw this guy in his uniform and, and you know, just the way he carried himself, Man, I knew that was what I wanted to do. And I didn't even know what he did, uh, Roger. But when he sat down with me, one, he took the time to sit down with me with this scrawny kid that no one really talked to much. I was pretty, you know, I, I just I, I struggled uh, for that with that. And he sat down with me and he started t- explaining to me what Green Berets do, U.S. Army Special Forces. And he talked about how they work by, with, and through indigenous populations. He talked about how they, you know, he said, Scott, they parachute into places that most people don't even know exist. And then different than the SEALs, different than the Rangers, different than the Delta Force guys who go on on target and hit it really quick and come off and they're great at it. Green Berets will parachute into a place and stay for months, even years. You know, they'll grow their beards out, wear indigenous clothing, connect with village elders, speak the language, and they immerse themselves in those areas until the, the time is right and the relationship is strong enough. And then they help the little guy stand up against the big guy. And that was all I needed to hear, man. For the rest of my life, 
from 14 years on years old on I, I I that was it I obsessed over the day that I could try out and become a Green Beret and and it never changed for me it never changed I, I, I love I love that story and and that's the way it should work right a young person inspired by somebody who's serving uh my experience with uh, Green Berets was uh, kind of known as the white soft the white special operations forces the the ones yeah. who aren't doing you know the 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 kind of kinetic immediate, you know, op, you know, black ops that seem to get all the fascination and tension in Hollywood. But as even in your brief explanation of, of who the Green Berets are, you can immediately see the sophistication and the significance of what the Green Berets do. Tell us a little bit more about uh, later on in that journey and what it meant to you to become a Green Beret and, 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 and your service. Uh, obviously, it, it took you into Afghanistan, uh, but 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 how that how that came uh, to fruition for you? Well, you know, when you and I were getting started with this interview, you were talking about some of the things that were going wrong leading up to it, and 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 some of the you know the mistakes that were made. And I, I was laughing because that for me that's been my life is every every endeavor that I've tried to pursue, I seem to fail like multiple times. And special forces were certainly no exception. It, it's a, it was about a five year journey from the time I came in as a lieutenant because you have to you have to wait until you're, you know, a certain rank. And so in that for first lieutenant promotable captain. So there's a four to five year wait. So what I did was I went to every hard school I could think of, Ranger School, Jumpmaster School, Air Assault School, and I failed every single one of them multiple times. Um, you know, still a scrawny kid, still just it just was difficult for me. And and what what I did do right, I think, and I'd kind of learned it in that little log in town was my dad taught me when you get out, you get knocked down, you get back up and you just keep coming at them. And eventually I made it through all of those schools. I got recycled in the special forces qualification course a couple times as well. But, you know, when I finally got my Green Beret and it was awarded to me, you know, it was one of the most special moments in my life because I had wanted to do this since I was a little kid. I had failed miserably at it for five years trying to get there. And when I got that that green hat in my hand, it was it was like lightning was moving through my body. And and I I still feel that way when I pick it up and I hold it and and I, I talk to to buddies that are still doing this mission. Like it was it was everything. It was everything. And and it 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 was everything I thought it would be when I when I put that green beret on. We're talking to Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, author of uh the really uh Tragic um, yet inspiring book, Operation Pineapple Express, uh, a Green Beret who had deep ties uh, and even after retirement to Afghanistan. And uh, we're going to get to the story in just a moment, Scott, and talk about Nizam and, and, and how it led you to this to this work. But give us a bit of a highlight of your, your career and uh, whether it's Afghanistan or elsewhere where uh, you practiced the world of white soft. You were there and 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 lived the life of a green green beret. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I would say for folks who who don't necessarily spend a lot of time around that world is one of the things that the green berets do differently than most of the special operators out there is by with and through indigenous people. In other words, if you think about most of the threats that we faced in the world, whether they are near peer threats like the Soviet Union or China 
or violent extremist groups like al-Qaeda or ISIS, there is a surgical strike capability that you go head on and you do that direct action thing. But for the most part, when we deal with international threats, we work with partners. We work with surrogates. We work by, with, and through others to achieve effects. That's what Green Berets do. Uh, when we invaded Panama, while the Ranger Regiment was walking down targets associated with Noriega, Green Berets that were stationed in Panama did Operation Ma Bell, where they put 10 cents in a phone booth, picked up the phone to the local cartel leader, and in Spanish said, look, you probably want to come out with your boys right now because those helicopters you hear are Rangers, and they're not going to call you. <laughs> and they affected one of the largest surrenders of a, an enemy force in history. You never hear that story. But those are the kind of things that Green Berets do because they build relationships and trust when risk is low, and then they leverage it and they mobilize those forces when risk is high. And it's um, for me, it was it was literally it's like a combination of John Wick, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and the Verizon guy. You know, it, <laughs> these uh, these relationship based connectors who happen to be lethal but only when they need to be. And, and that's the role they play. And so for me, being able to do that the first 10 years of my career down in Central and South America during the 90s, which was a pretty sporty time to be working down there, was phenomenal because we got to work with these partner forces, Roger, like the, the Colombian Lanceros and the Commandos and, and, and work with them, train them, advise them. And, 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 and they were magnificent in the work that they did, but they were really the ones that were on the pointy end of the spear and we were at their shoulder. And I was mentored by some really amazing sergeants and warrant officers who taught me that by, with, and through really is our strategic obligation to the nation uh, as Green Berets. And so when 9-11 happened, um, a massive pivot happened in the special forces community, like most of the military. And, uh, you know, there's only 6,500 Green Berets out of 1.4 million forces. So uh, you were either going to Iraq or Afghanistan after 9-11. And my, my focus was on in and out of Iraq, uh, Afghanistan for, you know, the next decade. How many, tour how many times are you there? Well, you know, I did three long tours. And then I don't even know how many trips over there at 45 days, 60 days, 90 days. It, it, it was constant. <laughs> You know, because when you're when you're assigned to a group, that's just kind of how it goes. There's the long trips, and then there's all the trips in yeah, between. I, so. I ask, if, figuring that you know, reading your book, that was kind of going to be the response because the war in Afghanistan and Iraq was extremely taxing on the military community and all those who served active yeah. guard. But in the special operations community, especially, I mean, they're just the number of tours and times they were there and and the wear and tear it had on 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 them as as um, as troopers, but also their families uh, is is a story you hear from. Perhaps doesn't get enough attention, but it was a huge huge sacrifice. Scott, I want to pivot now. Um, you certainly earned retirement, you know, given just talking about that career. But we're going to take you to May of 2021, and um, it's where your book begins with an Afghan named Nizam. Tell me about the text message exchange and what happened. Yeah, I think to set a little bit of context, I had retired almost 10 years prior to that. I retired in 2013. I was a lieutenant colonel, had spent several tours in Afghanistan and had left the army, you know, feeling pretty good about the run I had had, but I didn't like where things were going in Afghanistan. 
uh, particularly we had done a village engagement program, Roger, called Village Stability that we had as a as a collective, we had been pulled off of and a microcosm of what happened in 2021 happened to those villagers. They were slaughtered and that never I could never get over that. And I just looking at the careerism at senior levels in the military and what it was required to keep. I just I, I stepped away. And I say that because I had moved on with my life like a lot of these volunteers and had built a, a for-profit, a non-profit. My primary focus is as a storyteller, a playwright, even an actor to complete my midlife crisis, you know? So I was not, you know, I was not like the number one draft pick for personnel recovery out of Afghanistan. <laughs> and, um, and, and Nizam reached out to me really because he and I had met in 2010, like a lot of my other friends who were Afghan commandos and Afghan special forces. And I think for people listening or watching to this is like, you know, the relationships we build and, and not just special forces, but special operations, as you alluded to, because you go back so much, you're just constantly going back and forth there. You build very, very deep familial relationships with these individuals. And so Nizam was no exception. I had spoken. He was one of he was an Af he was um, he was actually born in 89. He's not sure what day his father was Mujahideen and had been killed by the Soviets. Four days later, his house was bombed and th th they forgot him in the house as a four month old. And, and he somehow survived without a scratch. Mother sold into a forced marriage. Nizam slept in the barn until he was 11, ran away from home and lived on the streets of Takar until he joined this thing called the Afghan army that NATO forces had brought to the country. Within a very short period of time, he was a commando. And then he went special forces. He was one of the first guys to graduate Afghan special forces. I spoke at his commencement, you know, and then a few months later, we were conducting combat patrols together. So we became very, very good friends. Nizam was shot through the face, turning around to warn U.S. Green Berets of a Taliban ambush. And within three weeks, he was back on the battlefield. He was shot in the chest three times by ISIS, conducting unilateral operations against them latter, in the latter part of the war. To me, man, he was the embodiment of this partnership that we had built over decades with the Afghan commandos and the Afghan special forces. He went to our qualification course at Bragg. He was actually a U.S. certified Green Beret uh, weapon sergeant. So when he started texting me, we stayed in touch over the years. He started texting me late spring on Signal that things were falling apart. And he was giving a play-by-play, -play, Roger, of each province as it was falling. And he said to me by June, he or late June, he said, I think the whole thing flips in a month. And that was really staggering to me because at that point he was hiding in his uncle's house. He was getting texts from the Taliban saying, we know where you are. And Nizam really doesn't get scared. And he was scared. So you mentioned June. And Nizam is telling you things are things are bad. Yeah. Not gonna hold. And you know at the end of your book, testimony from our Secretary of State in June. Uh, where he said that collapse wouldn't be something that happens from a Friday to a Monday. And and it fell on a Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're in this kind of two worlds, Scott. Yeah. Here you are, you're watching the news, you're private citizen now, you're looking at the papers and seeing this testimony from those leading yeah. policy in Washington on behalf of the U.S. government, they're saying one thing, and then you got your partner from the by, with, and through of years of work in Afghanistan who's telling you something entirely different. How'd you, how'd you, how'd you organize the, 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 the two conflicting narratives? 
It was really hard because, and that's why I started off with my description of where I was in my life, because I'd spent 10 years of my life, you know, trying to move on, you know, trying to, to move past the guilt and, and just the, the things that happened over there and, and, and just trying to move forward. And now all of a sudden, you know, whether or not this young man lives or dies is starting to become like a serious responsibility here. It's and, and at first I thought, okay, I'll help him get his SIV. We'll try to figure out what's going on. SIV and, is special immigrant yeah, special immigration visa. visa. Yeah, yeah. Right. It, which, which he had applied for a year prior. There had been no movement, but you know, he was a graduate of our qualification course. So I thought surely like the senior leaders at the SOCOM level, the special ops level are tracking him. And, you know, I just need to make sure that that connection happens. And, and that really led to nothing there there was just a kind of an echo chamber um at the senior levels of of command in the special ops community when i inquired about it and you know so it started to become pretty obvious that that no one was coming no one was going to try to get him out there was no extraction you know and and he said to me at one point on shortly after the collapse on the 15th of august he said scott he said i'm not i'm not afraid to die i just never thought i was going to die alone you know, and man, that just, I don't know, it just broke me. It was just, it just, the, the level of abandonment that had happened. And I just, it just felt so wrong, you know, and, and, and I just, I told him kind of in an emotional state, I said, you're not going to die alone. You're not going to die at all. You're going to get over here. You're going to get home to here. And we're going to, you know, going to live next to me in Riverview. How about that? And, and, and when I got off the phone, I was like, man, I just made a promise that there's no way that I can keep. And I think a lot of us felt that way in that, in that moment, that this thing so, was too big. Nizam, yeah. somebody who had become a friend, somebody you respected, somebody who helped our country, sacrificed for our country, trained in our country. You get off the phone and you've just made a commitment to help him get out of Afghanistan because you heard his assessment of what's on the ground and you knew he couldn't remain there given his profile and what was about to happen. Right. You mentioned special immigration visa. Scott, this is not easy. What what did you have to do? Tell everybody the story of what you had to do to get Nizam going. And then as if that's not enough, you decide afterwards, well, we got other Nizams out there. Let's get moving. And and so kind of take us from Nizam to Operation Pineapple Express and how it led to five hundred more Afghans getting rescued. So give, give us the, give us the heart of the story, Scott, and, and hopefully our listeners and readers will, will buy the book so they could, they could read the detail. Yeah. It, um, it was sitting in this office right here when I, when, when he said those words to me and, and I realized that he was either, you know, he was, he was probably going to, I was talking to a dead man walking, but what I couldn't live with was the fact that doing nothing, and, 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 and letting my friend be murdered. I just couldn't, I couldn't live with that. It went against everything that I'd been taught as a Green Beret. So I picked up the phone and called a couple of buddies, uh, Green Berets, a couple of them who were active duty, a couple more who were not, but what we all had in common was Nassam. Everybody loved that kid. And, and then, you know, I called a couple of Washington insiders uh, to include Congressman Mike Waltz is, uh, you know, he's, he and I are old friends and he, he assigned me one of the people from his office. He's the first green beret to get elected to Congress, correct? He is, he is. And we also, he and I, uh, worked together in Afghanistan. So way before, you know, he was a Congressman and he was just a pain in the butt captain, but <laughs> you know, 
I, I kid because he was he's an amazing officer. But but you know, we put this little team together. We had no idea really what to do except that we needed to the, the challenge was how do you move or facilitate the movement of, of of a commando through the streets of Kabul past these Taliban checkpoints through a crowd of thousands up to the Marines, get him passage past the Marines with no paperwork because he doesn't have his SIV, it's not been approved, then get him manifested on an airplane and flown out of there, right? And and meanwhile, like the clock is ticking. So the team just started working different parts of that problem, Roger. Like I took the part of like getting him movement through the city using connections that I had in the Jamiat Islami network and getting him like a, a driver in a cab that would allow him to move surreptitiously. And so all of us kind of took a chunk of it. But honestly, what it came down to at the end was relationships. It came down to pre-existing relationships that had been built over years when risk was low. And just like we talked about when we started this interview, leveraged when risk was high. And Green Berets are good at that. They're good at being eyes and ears. We operate remote all the time. And we had trained Nizam and Nizam had trained himself. He was damn good. And so the bulk of it was done by him. So you get this team together, you lean on the relationships, you and like-minded formers, retired military people had from their years in Afghanistan and you're working magic and miracles, getting all, getting the pieces together so that Nizam can get out two, two pieces. I love you to comment on, uh, just so we understand the depth of this challenge and and yeah. and, and the the risks involved here. If you are Afghan special forces, right? You have been fighting with the Taliban, fighting against the Taliban on behalf of the Afghan government for over a decade. What happens to you if the Taliban catches you? Executed on site. If you're lucky. If you're lucky, otherwise you're pulled into a special room and you go through interrogation that is brutal and then you're killed. So in Afghanistan, as you're trying to navigate, you just share with us a car driver getting to Kabul International Airport. Let's just recall for everybody listening and watching the the, the scenario was the Taliban controlled what was yeah. outside the walls of Kabul International Airport. So what you had to do is effectively smuggle this individual through territory controlled by the Taliban where this individual is enemy number one for the Taliban. Right. Am I getting that right? Yeah, you're all over it, Roger. And you know, these guys hunted the Taliban. They carried, the Afghan special ops carried 98% of the fighting load in the final years of the war. They did everything unilaterally. They carried the load. So the Taliban immediately, as soon as they took Kabul, they went to the Ministry of Defense. They found the addresses of these guys and they started hunting right away. Uh, any addresses that were associated with these cats, they went after. And so with Nizam, we, were, we moved quick and we got him in front of that Taliban ring of security that went in. So we got him into this crowd of thousands. Now this crowd, you'll have to read the book to really get an appreciation for it or, or watch one of the documentaries on it. But I mean, you're talking about thousands of people pressed against each other, men and women holding their babies up to try to get above the tear gas, 107 degree temperature, little ones getting trampled. Uh, it was it was it was just this sea of inhumanity. And Nizam managed to move through that. He managed to use his tactical prowess to move through that area. And then once he did, he got within four feet of the gate. And that was when we really started to run into problems that his he didn't have paperwork. The Marines were 
were about to push him out of there uh, and his cell phone was running out of power in broad daylight. That was when it got really desperate. And that's actually the uh, the origins of where the whole pineapple thing came from, a phone call to the inside and, and him getting pulled in. But, you know, I'll let people read that because it, it it's pretty it's pretty amazing uh, what that young man did to navigate it. But what I will pivot into your next point and I'll let you uh, weigh in here, Roger, but once Nizam got in, we hadn't slept in like 96 hours. You know, I collapsed in my driveway when he sent the selfie of him on the other side of the wire. And I thought, okay, that's it. You mean then, he's in, he's in, he's on the other side of the wall in Kabul International Airport. He, he, he's safe now, right? He's out of Taliban danger. You think? I did it. I got my buddy out. I'm done. I'm going back to my life. This is a government issue. This is an Uncle Sam size problem. You know, and then all of a sudden, my phone just started blowing up from buddies who were SEALs, Rangers, uh, infantrymen, Marines, civilian intel analysts. I mean, you name it. And guess what they're doing? The exact same thing, because they all got the phone calls from their Nizam. And they were like, hey, heard you got Nizam out. You want to work together? And I, uh, I looked at my wife, who's been married. We've been married for 26 years, all of it during the war. And she just kind of smiled at me and she said, I'll go start making supper. Hmm. And I just knew, I knew right then and there, I was like, oh my God, we are back in it. And, and that began Task Force Pineapple. We opened up the signal chat room. We became like a 150 person volunteer group. And then the real challenges of moving people started to settle in. Tell us about that. The real challenges, give us a sense of the scale um, and then take it through a key question to explain why Task Force Pineapple was necessary. This is it may be an emotional response, but I'm actually seeking just an, uh, a response that explains what was happening. Right. Why Perfect. isn't the government doing this? Why are they not doing this? We kept asking ourselves that, and we kept thinking, well, at any minute, the SOCOM, the, 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 the government's going to come in, the special ops world's going to come in, and they're going to say, hey, give us your manifest to the commandos. Give us your man, because we're talking to all, all of them, right? They're calling us because we had worked with them, and so we have them on the line, and they have unit coherence, right? The commandos, the special forces, they have, they, they're still, they're wondering, where the hell are you guys? Like, we're, you know, we're ready to fight. Um, so we're on the phones with them and, and, and we keep telling ourselves, we just need to keep this thing warm until we can responsibly hand them off. That's what kept going through my mind, Roger. But the thing to understand was you've got a few thousand people standing guard on this little perimeter of, of Kabul International Airport. They're not pushing forward. They're not allowed to. So they're on the outer edge of the perimeter, and there's this sea of thousands facing back at you, holding up certificates, holding up their children. Please take my baby. She's dying. You know, these are 18-year-old paratroopers and Marines right, that are having to face this level of inhumanity as suffering for hours and days on end with no real clear parameters on who to let in, who to let out, who's vetted, who's not vetted. And so what we figured out pretty early was our value proposition to this thing as Pineapple. And I think a lot of other volunteer groups arrived at the same thing. We're not on the ground, we're remote, but we do know who the at-risk people are. We know where they are and they trust us to move them responsibly for a handover to these security forces who don't know who they are. So what we started to put together was, what if we could build, and I look, I've got to give the credit to an Afghan, a Green Beret turned school teacher, much younger than me, named Zach, who's in the book, 
and he had just taught a segment on Harriet Tubman. And he came up with the idea, what if we could build an underground railroad that ran from the outskirts of the crowd up through the sewage canal to the a four foot hole in the fence where we could then work with the 82nd if we could get a relationship with them and they could pull them in. So basically it was a combination of relationships and moving these Afghans almost like planes lining up on LaGuardia for approach um, and then handing them over through voice comms to a young captain named John and a young first sergeant named Jesse who would then validate their identity and pull them through that four foot hole. And that became the Pineapple Express. And how many people went through Pineapple Express and how many did you want to get through that you couldn't? I have the number 500 here for my notes, but. Yeah, I mean, um, not enough, you know, not enough, but, um, the numbers vary. I, I've seen, I, I feel pretty comfortable somewhere between 500 and 750 during that window before the, you know, the explosion shut everything down. And then we, we got some more out through other groups. The explosion which well, killed the U.S. military personnel. Yeah, that killed the 13 U.S. personnel and hundreds of uh, Afghans, you know, at Abbey Gate, where we were. The, the four-foot yeah. hole that we were leveraging was right there at Abbey Gate. Um so it, it, we, you know, it was hundreds that got out. Uh, most of them were Afghan special operators with their families. And I want to point that out. You know, imagine that you're a, an Afghan commando. So like in our military, you know, you go, you go deploy, you come home and that's it. Like there's no, there's no danger in your house. No one's tracking you, but these commandos are having to take their wife, their mom and their dad, their little kids, and they're having to teach them tactics. Right. So when you get to the Taliban checkpoint and they start to beat your mother, you have to keep pressing forward. I mean, and 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 our veterans are on the phone with them while they're saying, Steve, they're beating my wife right now. What should I do? You know? And and that was the reality. That was what these veterans and these Afghan partners and their families endured for days. And that's why I wrote that book because that just didn't get told that 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 emotional, re, you know, resonant, courageous action of these of these Afghans who risked everything, and these veterans who stood at their shoulder, and it that was every day for like seven straight days with no sleep. It was unlike anything I've ever seen. We're talking to Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, the author of Operation Pineapple Express, a remarkable story of courage and. Heroism uh, and, and all wrapped up in, in a great tragedy, which was the American exit out of Afghanistan. Uh, in the remaining time we have, Scott, um, I'd like you to give us your, to give us your perspective on where Afghanistan is today. You know, with a 24-hour news cycle, yeah, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, challenge we have in the Pacific and China from a military standpoint and a U.S. national security standpoint, Afghanistan is not making headlines yet. The thing about Afghanistan, you look at history, is that whether you want to uh, think about it or not, or not, it'll always remind you it's there at some point. Uh, the Taliban is, as you just described, is a brutal regime uh, yeah. that 
is not uh, going to be neutral vis-a-vis -vis the United States or our interests. I've obviously just editorialized a little bit, but Scott, give me your take on on Afghanistan today and and where where we are with those that we should be bringing. Uh, supporting and taking out Afghanistan. Or who else do we have behind? How are they doing? And uh, and and kind of the challenge it presents to to our safety and security. Yeah, I appreciate that question, and I'll 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 try to package it all up here. But imagine a year plus after all this has happened. I was just in this very room with twenty volunteer organizations. We refer to ourselves as Moral Compass. So it was Pineapple and other groups in this room who are still doing this. We're still in some capacity working this issue to uh, try to take care of our at-risk allies any way that we can, including funding safe houses, medical drops. One group's had twenty babies born since the explosion uh, through surreptitious medical care, and it's all been funded privately. I mean, it's like my buddy Duke says, it's an Uncle Sam-sized problem funded by veteran pensions. And so that's been going on for a year plus. We're approaching a really nasty mental health crisis with this veteran population as we go into Veterans Day, and I hope people will clock that uh, because a lot of veterans are very, very uh, uh, distraught by this whole thing, and many of them are still in the game. Okay. I say that because the level of context and situational awareness that we have as veterans is unprecedented because we're still talking to the special operators and the intelligence operators who are on the ground. And the government is not, at least not at a policy level. So some things that have happened in the year plus, and, and you've made a very astute observation, which is this. It's easy to say that we're done with Afghanistan and the war on terror. It's not done with us. The enemy always gets a vote. And so here are some things that are some highlights that have happened just very recently as a result of the Afghan withdrawal and the abandonment of our allies. First of all, it is a humanitarian nightmare. Starvation on an epic scale, uh, the levels of abject poverty and what that foments and creates is the Russians and the Iranian embassy officials uh, multiple sources recruiting. They are actively co-opting Afghan commandos and special operators in Iran and other third countries to mobilize them and have them fight in Ukraine. And so there's a very heavy threat stream that is shown. So imagine Afghan commandos, their families being held hostage, now being put on the Ukrainian battlefield. What that's going to do is from a propaganda perspective to the moral injury of our veterans, uh, on the violent extremist side, uh, very, very accurate reporting that al-Qaeda is reconstituting foreign fighters from North Africa, from Southwest, uh, Southeast Asia, from, uh, from Iraq, Syria, all openly training with Taliban uh, approval on former Afghan National Army bases in Helmand and Kandahar. Uh, Osama bin Laden's son, Abdullah, is back in country. Zawahiri's son-in-law is in country. Um, there is a very fresh set of reporting coming in that ISIS, the main ISIS headquarters, has displaced from Syria and moved into uh, Afghanistan in the east and in the north. What, what we're seeing right now in my assessment, Roger, is an emergence or re-emergence of violent extremist sanctuary that is actually worse than pre-9-11. And the antibody that could have stood against that, both the commandos and, frankly, the resistance, we have no interaction with at all. So the, so, the, the, the mindset of policymakers in the Biden administration that we could 
exit Afghanistan and engage in this kind of strategic overwatch and carry out operations as necessary from a distance, call it the Persian Gulf or someplace else. Scott, that's not really playing out. Um, these ungoverned spaces are actually, you know, uh, breeding grounds for extremism, and it is a sanctuary for Al Qaeda. Everything that we were told wouldn't happen. Yeah, and and you know that goes back to the whole Green Beret approach and the and the special ops approach. Is everything about dealing with with threats in the world is local. We have to build local capacity to serve as an antibody to these threats. That's what Green Berets do. That's what Marines do in some cases. Like we have that capability. We spent 20 years doing it. We bled for it. We lost our friends. We lost our youth building that capability so that what happened on 9-11 would never happen again. I lost my best friend in the Pentagon. And we spent our life, we gave our adulthood to build this partner capability, this antibody. And we literally wholesale abandoned it in less than 24 hours. And now it, all of those threats are not only reconstituting, but I'm very, very confident in the reporting that they're reconstituting on a scale that is worse than pre 9-11 and our disposition to deal with it and our willingness to deal with it is even more tone deaf than it was then. What do you say, uh, Scott, now I'm going to make you policymaker, not Green Beret operator, tactician, or just humanitarian, saving lives of people uh, who need help and whose lives were in danger, but take it up to this, to this policy level where there's a mindset that we were in Afghanistan, you know, 20 years and um, U.S. presence triggers extremism that a neo-isolationist outlook would dictate, just get out of the way and let someone else do it. And we can't have our, uniform personnel on the ground that just invites conflict. You know, Scott, those are perspectives that reside in both parties, Democrat party and Republican party. In fact, increasingly on the Republican side, we got some elections here in the midterms with people running on those points. Yeah. What's your take? What do you say to them? And what do you say to the voters who are, who are persuaded by that neo-isolationist perspective? I would just say be careful about that. I take a very apolitical stance on this. I spent my career as a soldier, so I try to like just speak to like what's the threat? What's the enemy? What is it that we're looking at and dealing with here? And I think an isolationist mindset, while convenient and while in many cases attractive, is diluted when you're particularly dealing with jihadist organizations who have a global mandate to strike us not only at home, but where we live, work, and play at a level that is more ter horrorism than terrorism. Mm. And this is an enduring mandate that ISIS believes is to usher in an, an apocalyptic end of days. And the fact that, honestly, our policymakers over the last 20 years, I don't think they really understood the nature of the Afghan campaign. I don't think they understood Afghan civil society, that when you get four feet off the road in any place in Afghanistan, it's more primal and, and, and honor-based than top-down democracy. We just didn't make an effort to, to even operate there over the long term. But most of all is I don't think we told the story to ourselves and to our people that what we really needed to do was not only prevent al-Qaeda from striking again, but was to build an overarching, enduring capability for a partner force to stand against that threat. And if you think about it, it, it yes, we were there 19 years, but it that army didn't exist 
We literally built an army from scratch. You know any armies that are proficient in 19 years of existence? Like it is a long-term game. We didn't need 100,000 plus people there, but we did need uh, the right number of Green Berets and other uh, expeditionary diplomats and, who, and Marines who could get into those rough places and build capacity over time. Last question. Last question on the policy. Then I want to go to lightning round and uh, maybe also share with us where listeners and viewers who want to support your efforts, tell them where to go so they can do that. But yeah. last policy question is that the Afghan military did not stop the Taliban's assault on Kabul. Uh, the Afghan government fell. Uh, the president left town. Many point to that as an indictment of those years that the U.S. invested in building up the Afghan military, blood and treasure. Scott, doesn't sound like you think that's the full narrative or the correct narrative. Was this military, was it inevitable that they would fall? Was Would we build something that could have been sustained? Well, I think it's just not the full narrative. I mean, there's a huge amount of investigation that needs to happen, that lessons learned that needs to happen. We need to, we made a lot of mistakes. I think every administration that participated in this thing needs to really come forward and own their, you know, their mistakes as well as those of us who serve there for the long haul. But what I will tell you is that we built a military in our own image. And I think our own hubris allowed us to do that. We thought that we could build a military that was super advanced and complex and highly technical using optics and intelligence, precision fire platforms. Platforms, and then we had this large contractor base around it. And they, they did become effective, particularly the special ops folks. I mean, they carried the bulk of the load. But let's not forget that over 60,000 Afghan security forces were killed in this war, you know, and, and, and that's a pretty large number of bearing the brunt. But we built the army in such a way, Roger, that we needed long-term enduring combat advisory assistance. In June, we pulled all the contractors out. We pulled all the Green Berets out. It was such a no-notice event that General uh, Sadat, who was fighting in Helmand, his air boss walked into his office and said, we can't fly combat ops today. All the contractors are gone. So, I mean, we did this in such a way that we literally built the army a certain way. We allowed corruption to manifest, and then we just pulled the plug on it. So if anybody folded, it was, it was the U.S. support uh, servicemen who there pulled out and the contractors, uh, and then left, left them. That is the Afghan military with, with, without the support they were depending on. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, author of Operation Pineapple Express. Tell us uh, what, where we should go if we want to support, uh, what, what you're doing, what you're continuing to do. Well, I would ask people, first of all, if you go to scottman.com, we have our whole body of work there. I've written a play about the war. Um, we have a lot of uh, efforts underway to help with uh, uh, opereleaf.org is right there. So that's a great place to just go to see uh, the full body of work. Uh, but if you want to just help the Afghan effort directly, you can go to opereleaf.org. Um, but I do hope you'll see scottman.com. It's a, it's, a, it's a really cool body of work there, and you'll see that we're doing a lot of stuff to not just help the Afghan partners, but our veterans as well. Let's go to the lightning round, Scottman. Thanks for that. This is where we ask our guests to share their favorite speech by President Reagan, uh, quote of President Reagan, and book on the president. What do you have to share? Well, I think I can answer the first two. I, I would say that my favorite speech was a speech that he gave at Arlington. 
uh, on Memorial Day. And I don't remember the exact date of it, but to this day, in fact, I've built a video around it uh, to talk about what Memorial Day is all about. And it, it is it has stayed with me. I never forgot that speech. I watched it as a as a young high school kid and it just stopped me in my tracks. I mean, it, it, his level of reverence that he had for our fallen and what it means to our nation, it was so beautiful. Like I, there's never been a storyteller like him since. I mean, it just, it, it literally, every time I go to Arlington, I hear that talk in my head. So that's, that's my favorite. And then for me, uh, on the quote, man, I'm torn, uh, trust, but verify, you know, has always stayed with me, but also Mr. Gorbachev turned out, tear down this wall, you know, that'll always be a, a, a you know, a top one for me. Two good ones to leave us with. Lieutenant Colonel Scott, man, thank you for your service. Thank you for continuing to serve uh, and look, look forward to staying in touch. Thanks so much, Roger. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.